You're listening to TIP. Today's show is a special one for a few reasons. Mainly because I bring back Preston Pish, who's the co-founder of the Investors Podcast Network, but also because this is going to be the first two-part episode here on millennial investing. Preston and I's conversation ran long, so I decided to split it up into two episodes. This episode will be part one, and next week's episode will be part two, where we continue the conversation. In this episode, we talk about topics that are very popular these days, and I know a lot of people are interested in them, but we haven't yet covered them on the show. And so today, we'll be talking all about Bitcoin, blockchain, and other cryptocurrencies. You'll hear throughout this conversation that I'm very honest and upfront that I personally know nothing about these topics. If you're new to it all and it seems confusing and even a bit overwhelming, I'm right there with you. I even tell a story in the episode about how I bought a Bitcoin a few years ago, but I had to sell it a few days later because I literally felt sick. I didn't understand it and I just wasn't comfortable owning it. I couldn't sleep well at night. So if you're like me and you enjoy the content, but it's a bit heavy or technical, don't be afraid to go back and listen to it again and again and again, if you have to. I've already listened to this entire conversation about three or four times myself. So if you enjoy the content, but just need to hear it again to really comprehend it, I definitely recommend you do that. Coming from the vantage point of not knowing anything about Bitcoin, blockchain, or really any cryptocurrencies, I've always been very, very skeptical of it all. A lot of what I read on the internet seems like a scam. My very surface level thoughts made me think negatively about all of these things. And in reality, it's just been outside my circle of competency. But when someone like Preston is so passionate and bullish on it, it makes me realize that maybe I should look into it too. I know Preston, and he's a Warren Buffett value investing type guy. I mean, he founded the Investors Podcast Network, wrote multiple books, and published a bunch of courses with Stig entirely around value investing in Warren Buffett. So to know that this type of guy can be into this content and these types of topics, it really got me intrigued. Throughout the conversation, I think it'll be very clear for you all just how brilliant Preston is and how he's really put in the time and effort to study this material and understand it fully. That said, not everyone agrees with the points Preston makes throughout the episode. Some of it is his opinion, so keep that in mind, but he has at least put a lot of thought and research into it. He also uses a lot of great examples and metaphors throughout the episode that really help drive home the points in ways that are easy to understand for people like me who don't know anything about these topics. So with all of that said, let's dive into part one of my conversation with Preston Pish. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have a very special guest. I have Preston Pish from We Study Billionaires. Welcome to the show, Preston. Hey, Robert. Great to be here. Excited. Most of the people listening to the show today are probably familiar with you from your podcast, We Study Billionaires with Stig. But for those who may not know who you are, give us a quick overview of your background. Well, I kind of have a strange background for this space to be talking finance. I've always just had a passion for investing. And then, oh boy, 
six years ago, I want to say Stig and I started a podcast, which was the We Study Billionaires podcast. And I'd say maybe eight or nine years before that, we co-authored a book. And we started off really kind of focusing on Warren Buffett and his investing style. I programmed the website called Buffett's Books, which kind of teaches Buffett's style of investing step-by-step. It's a completely free website. Every lesson on there is completely free. It's called buffettsbooks.com. So if somebody has an interest in that that style of investing, it's it's a pretty easy site to go through and, and you can kind of learn the basics of investing. But that's kind of how I got my start putting all that content out there. And then it's just a love of talking about finance and more, to be honest with you, it's more of a love for mathematics and just trying to solve puzzles that has attracted me to finance and investing. Investing really is just just like a big puzzle, right? So you're putting all these pieces together and trying to make them all fit and just make that masterpiece at the end. That's what it is. It's, it's a challenge of... I think what I really liked about it was everyone's got an opinion but at the end of the day, the thing that kind of settles the score is the person who had the winning position and has the, the proof of work is how I would kind of describe it. But it's really fun to, to step in and try to take a contrarian position on something that would be, you know, a perfect example would be Tesla today. You look at the Tesla stock, and I mean, you have some people that are adamant, I mean, passionate about why it's going higher. And then you have another crowd of people that literally have the exact opposite opinion saying this thing is so overpriced and a liquidity disaster. They're going to have to dilute the shares, all that kind of stuff. So you got really strong arguments on both sides. And at the end of the day, we're going to find out who's right and wrong. But that's what I love about finance is you got to really step into these intellectual arguments and you can't have like surface level comments. Like you got to go really deep and you got to think second, third, fourth order effects as to why something is or something isn't. Yeah, everyone has an opinion where those puzzle pieces go, but only one person can be right, and that puzzle can only come together in one way. And whoever's pieces fit in the right spot is going to be going to be right at the end. So I'm excited to dive into today's topics. We're going to talk about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, blockchain, and everything else related to these topics. And I'm excited because they're such popular topics, but they're ones that I don't personally know a lot about. When Bitcoin first went mainstream a few years ago, I remember I bought one coin for like a thousand bucks or maybe fifteen hundred just to try it. And then I quickly sold it like a day or two later for a small profit because like I almost felt sick. It was not an investment that I could sleep easy at night owning. But before we dive into that conversation, let's start by first defining some important terms. What is a cryptocurrency and then what is Bitcoin? Well I don't know that I'm gonna give you the the right definition here, but I guess how I would personally describe it is when you say blockchain, and I think this is important for people to understand upfront, like what in the world is that? And like, what's that technology behind when people say blockchain? So here's the, and this is the way I would describe the invention. So if I sent you a digital picture and you received that digital picture, you can basically copy and paste that digital picture and send it to a million people if you want to. If I would send you that digital picture through a blockchain, you are the only person on this entire planet that can own that picture. It cannot be duplicated digitally. And that's really hard for people to wrap their head around how that's even possible digitally to be able to send something and it to be the only copy, but that's what blockchain does. Okay. So when you start there and you understand that you can now send a digital scarce item to another person and they're the only person that can take possession of it, now people can understand how you could just, instead of it being a picture, you could just make a unit's numbers 
and I can send you a unit. So if I create 10 units on a blockchain and I send you one of those units, you're the only person that can own that one unit. And that would be the only person that could own the other nine units if you and I were the only two people participating in that. Dumbing this down to a really simple, easy to understand manner. But now kind of imagine that happening on a global scale. And there's a fixed quantity of those units that have been created inside that protocol as they get distributed, as they get traded amongst people. So if you take that one unit and you give half of that unit to your mom and the other half to your dad, well, now there's three people. I own nine. You own zero because you gave your one unit away and mom and dad have half a unit. And that's pretty much what's going on with cryptocurrency is when we say cryptocurrency, what we're really talking about are units that are on a protocol with a set baseline. When I say set baseline, that's the 10 and you can't create more because everyone that participates on the protocol has to agree that there should be more added. And when you have something that is distributed like that, pretty much if you're adding more units into the protocol, it doesn't benefit anybody if they're getting it proportionally shared amongst everybody. So there's no incentive there. And when you talk about Bitcoin specifically and why so many people and why I would argue that the market cap on Bitcoin is so high is because it is so decentralized at this point that the incentive structure is prohibitive for people wanting to add more units to the protocol. And it's not even possible unless every node agrees that it should be that more units should be added. So that's kind of where people will make this argument. Well, how can you control that there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoins ever created? Can't somebody go in there and adjust the code and there's going to be 22 million Bitcoins? And that just that cannot happen because everyone that's running a full node inside that protocol would have to agree on adding more units to the baseline of units that are in the protocol. I'm going kind of all over the place, but that's in general, when you're talking a cryptocurrency, you could basically write your own protocol. Today, Robert, you could write your own protocol. You could call them Robert Coins. And if you can get 10 people to trade your Robert Coins, well, now you you have a cryptocurrency. Now, would that have a lot of uh, strength in the mining or are they pre-mine? And you get all into the, all these other discussions, which we'll kind of table for right now to keep the discussion pretty simple. But that was what I would call a cryptocurrency. And then I would describe Bitcoin as being the most decentralized cryptocurrency out there that does not run into conflicts of interest of a single person driving the, the dominance of the governance that's taking place. It's completely distributed amongst millions and millions of people. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com 
slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. One of the things that stood out there that you said to me was the Bitcoin's market cap. And when I hear that, that kind of was interesting to me. And as someone who you talked about this before the show, I don't know much about Bitcoin either. So I'm learning along the, the audience. But when I hear market cap, I think of stocks. I think of equities, right? You don't usually think of a currency. I don't think of you know the US dollar having a market cap. So what does that mean in relation to Bitcoin? How is there a market cap around a currency? If we're talking stocks... Market cap is a really common terminology, right? And all it is is you're taking the share price. Let's say that there is a $10 share of a stock and there's 10 shares of that stock. So the market cap is just number of shares outstanding, which is 10, and the per share price, which is $10. And you multiply those two numbers together and you get the market cap, which in this case would be $100. Now, if you're talking like Apple or one of these companies, you're literally talking a, I mean, for Apple, you're like a trillion dollar market cap. When you take all the shares outstanding, you multiply it by the share price and then you get the market cap. So when you're talking about a currency, and I guess the reason that it doesn't really make any sense anymore is because you pretty much all these central banks that are printing fiat currency. And when, when I say fiat, that means it's backed by nothing. They can just print more of it if they want to. That's what makes something a fiat currency. It's really hard to understand that because the baseline is constantly changing and there's not a fixed amount of it. But with Bitcoin, you have a fixed supply that will cap at 21 million. Today, it's at 18 million. And we can talk about how that is slowly rising to 21 million. But today, the current number of units that are out there on the Bitcoin protocol, there's 18 million units. And I think this is really important for people to understand. There's 18 million units, but you can go beyond the decimal point. So you can buy 0.1 Bitcoins or you can buy 0.001 Bitcoins. And the decimal point goes out to 10 to the negative eighth power. 
So if you were going to move that decimal point to the right, I mean, you got so many units. It's not capped at, at 21 million units. It's capped at, but you can buy 0.1, clear down 10 to the megabytes. So there's plenty of units to be distributed globally amongst all people in the world. But to come up with this market cap figure, what you're doing is you're taking that current supply, which is 18.2 million. You're multiplying it by the current price, which one Bitcoin, if you're going to buy one Bitcoin today, it's worth $10,211. So when you multiply those two numbers together, you get a market cap of $186 billion is the market cap. And so as that 18.2 million gradually increases to its cap, at that point, do you expect the price to rise dramatically because of supply and demand? So you got to ask yourself, well, what are you comparing that to? So yes, you have inflation that's actually happening in Bitcoin. And we could argue that, but for simplicity's sake, we'll just say that there's inflation. And, and what I'm talking about is that people lose their Bitcoins, which they can actually do if they lose their private keys, they can lose Bitcoin. I could maybe make the argument that the number of people that are losing their private keys is similar to the inflation rate today. Maybe. It's hard to say. Anyway, that gets into a technical conversation, which we don't want to have right now. So there's a little bit of inflation because if you're at 18.2 Bitcoin today and you go to 21 million Bitcoin in the future, which isn't going to happen for... You don't hit 21 million Bitcoin for... I don't know what the date is, but it's it's close to like 100 years from now is how long it's going to take the protocol to eventually get to 21 million. So if the inflation rate is that small, like I think the inflation rate today is like 4%, and then that's going to be cut down to like 2% or 1.5% here coming up in May timeframe, you go through what's called a four-year halving cycle. And so then it's going to be putting more Bitcoins onto the market even slower. That happens every four years. The protocol limits the amount of Bitcoins that are being paid to the miners that are securing blockchain. So to answer your question, which was supply and demand-based, so you've got something that is systematically inflating at a relatively small rate, especially when you account for lost coins. Okay. And what you're comparing it to is fiat currency and all the other central bankers in the world that are issuing currency. And let me tell you, they're issuing it a whole lot faster than that. And so when you talk about the value of a currency, you have to look at, well, what are you comparing it to? Are you comparing it to the price of gold? Are you comparing it to the euro, to the yen? And so what I would tell you is relative to other fiat-based currencies, Bitcoin is rock solid as far as the inflation rate relative to those other currencies. You also mentioned that I could technically create my own coin. And I've heard you know, many other companies even you know, look at Facebook with Libra and just other people or organizations have created other coins. So why are there so many coins out there right now? What is the purpose of that? And how are we going to define a clear winner? So this is a really popular question for people as they're looking at this. Because if you go to coinmarketcap.com, what it does is it keeps track of every cryptocurrency out there and the market cap and how the prices change. And it also shows you how the prices change relative to other cryptocurrencies and other coins. And what I would tell you is a person who doesn't understand why, in my personal opinion, Bitcoin is the clear winner and is going to continue to be the clear winner is they don't understand how network effects work. So let me give you an example of a network effect that I think everyone can understand. On your phone, do you have an iPhone or do you have an Android? iPhone. I have an iPhone as well. And when you send a text to another iPhone user, what color does the text come up versus if you send it to somebody that doesn't have an iPhone? iPhone is blue and non-iPhone or non-Apple products is green. That's right. And when 
you send that, you're sending it over the data stream and it's completely free because you're operating on their network. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to build a network effect amongst all the users, convince all their friends that own iPhones because Robert's my best friend and he has an iPhone. And every time I text with him, I get the green bubble. And, and what they're doing is they're driving a network effect. And what you eventually get is this total market dominance when you're dealing with a communications channel because there's a there's an incentive for all the participants to use the same instrument over that communications channel. You have a very similar thing happening in the cryptocurrency protocol space where because Bitcoin has so many users on it and the price of Bitcoin keeps going up, now you're driving a network effect for engineers to work on solutions to make the spendability of Bitcoin easier. They're building apps like the green app is something you can download straight onto your phone and then you can send Bitcoin straight into your iPhone and then you can transact with a friend. So when you look at some of these other coins, let's say, Robert, you create your own cryptocurrency. Your barrier to entry is how in the world are you going to convince everyone in your neighborhood, then everyone in your county, and then everyone in your state and everyone in your country to start using Robert coins? That is extremely hard. There are PhD level classes that you can go take at any business school, any college that specializes just in this idea of network effects. And so what I would tell somebody who who is looking at this and saying, all right, which one of these things are going to win? I would tell you to pay very close attention to all the different network effects. And if you are trying to understand the Bitcoin network effects, I would tell you to look up a guy. His name is Trace Mayer. And just type in Trace Mayer network effects. And maybe we can put a link in the show notes for some of this. But Trace talks about, I believe he has eight different network effects and how they're reinforcing specifically towards Bitcoin versus some of the other protocols and how those eight network effects are absolutely driving the adoption and the adoption rate towards Bitcoin dominance in the long run. And something else that I would tell people is when you start studying adoption rates over communications channel, you get into a thing called Metcalf's Law which is this exponential adoption rate. And when you look at how Bitcoin's price action has performed over the last 10 years, what you're going to actually see is Metcalf's law to a T. In fact, there's a person he goes by the, he has a Twitter handle. He goes by 100 trillion USD is his Twitter handle. He's a quant that runs a billion dollar quant fund out of Europe. And he loves statistics and he has done a, a model on Bitcoin based on the price action based over the uh, stock to flow ratio. So anyone who's familiar with trading commodities, they'll understand that there's a thing called a stock to flow ratio. The stock is the amount of coins in existence. So if, you were, if we were doing the stock flow on gold, it would be the amount of gold that is currently in existence. And then the flow would be the amount of gold that's mined annually. The numerator is the stock and the denominator is the flow. And so when you look at that ratio, it's going to give you a number, right? And the higher that you have a stock to flow, the more scarce that commodity is and therefore the more valuable that commodity is. And so what he started to do is an analysis of stock to flow and then he modeled it. And anyone who's conducted a model, especially with directed at Metcalf's law, Whenever he uh, modeled that stock to flow, what he came up with was a 95% R squared value. So anyone that's done Excel and plotted a bunch of dots down on the, on the graph, and then you 
run a uh, equation over those dots to see what the best fit is. Then you do a thing called an R squared value and you determine how good the fit is to those dots that you plotted. And a 95% R squared value is pretty much unheard of. Then what he did is he conducted a co-integration test, which is a statistical test that you can conduct. So you get into this debate of causation versus correlation. And so to remedy that, you can do what's called a co-integration test. And so in the co-integration test, it came back as being confirmed that it is co-integrated, which proves that the stock to flow ratio to price is correlated. You have a correlation there. And so this has been completely modeled and has been right within that variance. And when you plot all this out, you get Metcalf's law. And so what's really fascinating about this stock to flow model is we're really going to see whether it, it holds true because here in May, you go through the next four you're having on Bitcoin specifically, and the stock to flow price is $100,000. So is it going to go straight to $100,000 in May? Absolutely not. Typically, it's taken about a year to a year and a half after the halving event for price to reach that projected stock to flow price of $100,000. So we're going to see probably by, I would tell you by December of 2021, whether that model continues to be valid. It appears like it, like it will be, but you know, time will tell. I'll definitely put links to Trace Mayer's work in the show notes. I think we're probably going to have a lot of different resources in the show notes from this episode. So that'll be one of them. I'll also put a link to Plan B's Twitter profile in the show notes. You guys can go check that out as well. And I think a, a network effect that the audience would probably be most familiar with is social media. Because if you have a social media platform that your friends aren't on, nobody's going to use it. But if you have all your friends start joining a new platform, like when Instagram first started, you started seeing all your friends post on there you know, all these great photos. So then you wanted to join and then more people saw that and kept joining in. And I think today is social media is one of the best examples of network effect for the millennial generation to consider. It's way better than the example I gave. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, everyone knows iPhone too. So I think that works. <laughs> so we're talking about all these different coins, right? And so you mentioned coinmarketcap.com. So I pulled that up and I'm looking at the list of the coins and I see three that kind of stood out to me really quick. And that was Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, and Bitcoin SV. And again, I am not an expert by any means, but what is the difference between these three coins? Are they related or is someone just kind of using the Bitcoin name and creating another coin or what is going on with those three different coins, if you will? So what's really fascinating is you'll find people that... Remember how I was talking about level one thinking, level two thinking, and level three thinking and digging way deep into something. So what you'll have is you'll have people that'll say, there's no way on the planet this is ever going to work on a global scale because just look, I just pulled up coin market cap and there's like five coins listed with Bitcoin in the title. I have no clue which one to buy. How in the world is my mother and father going to be able to buy this? This is nuts, right? That's your level one thinking, unfortunately. And why I say that is because, and I can't say this is by design, but I would tell you that the greatest strength for Bitcoin is that so many people have that opinion. Because what happens is that I've been dealing with Bitcoin since 2015, and I've been hearing these arguments for five years now. And what happens is because your main finance people that work on Wall Street and manage money professionally would look at that and say, this is ridiculous. Ridiculous. What has happened is, is you've had total entrenchment of Bitcoin into the existing financial rails, payment rails. Okay. So whenever I first bought my first Bitcoin back in 2015 for $220, 
there were no derivative markets for Bitcoin. There's none of that stuff. I mean, this was like, you talk to anybody about this stuff, they thought you were nuts. In fact, Stig and I recorded a conversation from 2015 of us talking about Bitcoin, and we thought it was nuts. But at the end of the episode, I, I said, I bought some, right? And But this is, this is where it, it's really interesting is people would say that's the biggest liability where I would flip that on its head and I'd say, I think that might actually be one of the strongest assets about it is it has totally duped so many people for so long that now you have all these engineers that have done... I mean, you can do atomic swaps from a USD tethered coin that tracks the price of the dollar down to a T straight into Bitcoin, okay? With, in the blink of an eye, get immediate clearance of payments. And if you took cash from Bank of America and routed it over to some exchange, it might take you three days. It's totally crazy what's happening as far as the engineering that's going on to allow exchanges to integrate into this protocol. And I would argue that all that was possible because the adoption rate is, in my humble opinion, a timed Trojan horse. And we can talk about that later if you've got questions about why I think that I can get into all the details why from an engineering standpoint of how the protocol was constructed. But the naming and the forks that have happened off of Bitcoin and all these other coins are just confusion to the masses that have allowed the entrenchment into the financial rails. So to answer your question more specifically, you said Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin SV, all these other things. What has happened is other people said, oh, I think that we should have bigger blocks. I don't think that they should be one megabit blocks. I think they should be eight megabit blocks, meaning the blocks that are being mined should be able to handle larger transactions. And so one group of people said that's going to be really bad for security because not everybody can run a full node off of their home computer. And then you had another group that says, well, that doesn't matter. It's just, you know, there should just be big nodes that download the full blockchain and run this. And there's security implications associated with that. So no one could agree. And the people that had the opinion that you should go to eight megabit blocks, they forked the protocol, meaning they took that source code and they started running it right next to the other source code, but they changed it to eight megabit blocks. And then what you had were all the people that are mining it, which are most importantly, the people that are running full nodes. This gets into a little bit of a technical conversation. You have people running full nodes and then you have miners that are mining it. They started taking sides as to which one of those two protocols that they wanted to participate on. And lo and behold, look at the price and the price tells you who won. So you got Bitcoin Cash, which is at $472. You got the regular Bitcoin that's at $10,211. So what, what you have happening, and, and the reason why this is so different than what we saw before, like when the internet was stood up and you had the internet protocol and you had transfer control protocol, TCP, right? That rides on top of the internet protocol as a second layer. These protocols were designed just like Bitcoin and they were adopted just like Bitcoin. And they're now being used globally. I mean, if you're on the internet, you're using the internet protocol. You're using TCP. You're using transmission control protocol. You're using the hypertext markup language. You're using like all of these things. These are universal and the markup language is more for the code, but the protocols that I was discussing before are being universally adopted by everybody because of a network effect. And so in my humble opinion, you have the exact same thing happening, but you're having it for money now. And you're having this big giant fight at a protocol level as to what is money. And so far, your winner by quite a bit is Bitcoin. 
so we've talked about how the network effect is driving this and you were just talking about the different prices and I want to talk about that a little bit more. And of course, like you said, the network effect is a huge component of this, but outside of that, why would someone pay say 10,000 US dollars for a Bitcoin when they could just pay maybe 25 cents, 30 cents for a Ripple? So this all goes back to the scarcity of the units. So when you look at Ripple, for example, these were all pre-mined coins, meaning you didn't have to do any work in order to create them. And this is a... Oh, I'm going to say this word and I'm going to make some people mad. But for me, this is a scam because the person who created can say, oh, well, I'm going to create and they got 43 billion ripples. Okay. And if they wanted to add more because it was... Well, let me just start off with creating it. right? So they're pre-mined. So they, they literally created all 43 billion units. And if they wanted to keep 10 billion of them and then put the rest of them onto the market, they could do that. And they did do something like that. And so now that the remaining units are on there, what they can do is they can put more of that supply on the market when they want, and they can take some of that off of the market if they want. And so when you have that many units, 43 billion units versus Bitcoin at 18 million units, one's way more scarce than the other, and one is used way more than the other, and therefore the value is extremely higher than the other. And this is just, I mean, fiat currencies would be like this if the central banks actually managed the monetary baseline and didn't inflate the currencies. You'd have the exact same thing happen if they take money. And you see this in the markets. I mean, you're seeing this right now where they're conducting quantitative easing, which is I take cash, I drop it into the bond market, and I basically buy those bonds off the market and I pump all this liquidity into the system. And when I add that liquidity into the system, it has this effect of supply and demand and scarcity. And so that drives the value of it and whether it goes up or down. In your explanation, you said, quote, they a couple times. Who is they? When I'm referring to what? Ripple. They, Ripple. they okay. release these coins. So who is they? So for that one, it's pretty... For Ripple specifically, there's a Ripple Foundation. There's people, I don't know the gentleman's name, who's like the CEO of Ripple, which full disclosure, not something that I personally own or would recommend somebody own because I think it's very centralized. I think it's absolutely manipulated because they have that amount of units that they collected from the start. More importantly, they're not using a proof of work mechanism, which is driving the price higher, which in effect causes a network effect. And that's a whole big, long technical conversation. But they is actually a group of people and a foundation that's actually managing that protocol. They'll tell you that they're completely decentralized from the protocol at this point, but whenever they first founded it, it was not. They'll probably argue that extensively, but everyone can argue something as much as they want. But the reality of it is that they are absolutely manipulating the monetary baseline of that protocol. So that's not something that I would recommend anybody participate in. You want something. The whole issue with fiat right now is the manipulation of the monetary baseline. So in my humble opinion, the protocol that's going to win in the long run is the protocol that never manipulates their monetary baseline and demonstrates a super hard, easily transferable, immutable ledger like Bitcoin. And so based on what you just said, I'm assuming there's no Bitcoin foundation with the CEO running it, right? Bingo. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day -day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. 
With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. So all of this conversation leads to an even bigger question. Why do we even need a new form of money? Why do we need a new currency? What's wrong with what we have or just the US dollar? You wouldn't believe how many people do not ask that question or understand that question. And so I am thrilled you asked that because at the heart of everything, it all comes down to that question. Why in the world do we need to have Bitcoin when I can go to Starbucks and spend dollars? And they spend very easy. This is not about going to Starbucks and having an easier transaction by using Bitcoin. This is not about that. What this is about is globally, no currency is pegged anything. Okay. So 
this is going to turn into a little bit of a history lesson. <laughs> so when you go back to 1944, there was a thing called Bretton Woods. And what Bretton Woods was, is it was taking the US dollar and it was pegging it to gold. So if you went to the bank and you said, here's my $1, give me however many ounces of gold that are associated with that, you should be able to collect that many ounces of gold. The reason you use gold as a peg is because it's a scarce commodity. It's a scarce rock. It's not something that can be created in a lab. And that's why it's held the test of time of being money for eons. right? And so when they went through the Bretton Woods, the US said, we're going to peg the dollar to gold. Not only did that happen, but all these other nations that participated in Bretton Woods back in 1944, they also pegged their currencies to the dollar. So as they pegged themselves to the dollar and the dollar was pegged to gold, you had what was a fixed monetary baseline or what we thought was a fixed monetary baseline that couldn't be manipulated. So where this really comes into play is when you're conducting trade with another nation, you have this balance of payments event that occurs whenever you do not live up to your monetary baseline. So if you're printing at will, what you're doing is you're basically devaluing your currency and the country that has the peg currency is going to take advantage of that situation. Okay. So this, if you wanted to do a thought experiment, I would tell you to do it like this. Okay. This is the best example I can give you. Imagine you and I are playing and there's four of us. We're playing a game of Monopoly. Okay. And the banker, and it's just the four of us playing on our Monopoly table. And the banker is adding more and more money into the game. Okay. They just keep adding more and more. Every time we go around go, they just keep adding more and more money into the game. What's going to happen to the price of everything in that game as we play it and as we trade properties, right? As I go over and say, hey, I want to buy that property from you. Well, you're going to bid the price because there's more money in the game, right? Now, if you had a deflationary currency, they're taking money off the board, right? Every time you go around, go, the, the banker is clawing money back out of the game. This is how the real economy works, where the central banker is adding money in and then they're taking money out. Now, I want to do another thought experiment with you. Imagine that there's two other tables with four people sitting at those two other tables, in addition to our table, and they're also playing a Monopoly game. There's 12 people total playing Monopoly on three different tables, and we can now trade amongst those tables. Okay, So I can go over to table... So you got X, Y, and Z table. right? I can go from X table where I'm playing, and I can go over to Y table, and I can buy properties with my currency. right? Now, what I want you to imagine is one of those tables, let's say the table you and I are playing on, we have a banker that we're in cahoots with, and that banker is adding money into our game. And all the other players, all the other tables are keeping their money sound and fixed. But you and I, our table and the banker we're playing with, he just keeps slipping us hundreds. Well, guess what happens? We have an advantage. We have a huge advantage to go over to those other tables and start buying up all their properties. And if we do it slow enough, we do it super slow, those other tables aren't going to realize what in the world's going on. Well, this is exactly what happened, whether people want to believe it or not, this is exactly what happened from 1944 up until 1971 in the United States. And I have a chart that I can send you that shows the way it was done was through the money multiplier. So that's another thing that you can put in the show notes is what is the money multiplier? And people can learn what that is and how banking is... Basically, it's a multiple that banks have to have so much money on hand based on the exchange rate back in the gold. So what happened was is, is the US kept adjusting their money multiplier from 1944 to 1971. 
the banker was adding more cash into the game until it got to a point where there was so much cash into the game that if the players went back to the to the banker and started demanding the gold, guess what? There wasn't enough gold there to swap with the currency that supposedly it was backed by. So 71, the US comes off the gold standard. So if we come off the gold standard and we had this Bretton Woods system that everything was basically tied to the dollar, well, everyone else comes off the gold standard altogether. And so now you have this global event where money is not tied to anything. So what you've had effectively, and I've heard Ray Dalio call this, the US basically defaulted back in 71 when they came off the gold standard. What you've had is this slow motion default because when you look at interest rates back in, and interest rates even went further after 71. And they, when you got to 1981, you had the 10 year treasury at like 16.1 or 16.2% on the 10 year treasury by 1981 because there was so much interest in the country where all this manipulation of the baseline currency had been taking place for literally decades that the inflation was skyrocketing because there was so much demand for this booming economy that was happening. How does the central bankers deal with this over the clear up until right now? Well, they keep adjusting the interest rates and they do that through the bond market. They do this through the supply of money. Well, they originally they did that through the federal funds rate, which is your short-term money. And as that came clear down and it eventually hit zero after the 2008 crisis, the federal funds rate was pegged at zero. Now they have to start going into the long tail of the bond market where they're doing longer duration bonds and they're, they're now buying that up. And what you're having since, well, really 1971 period of time is you've had a slow motion default. Where currencies fail in the end is when the interest rates go to 0% and they can't go any lower. You're not there yet in the US. Well, you are on some portions of the uh, bond yield curve. When you go to Europe, when you go to Japan, they are in negative interest rates, especially when you look at it from a real basis instead of a nominal basis. They are in negative interest rate territory. And here in the US, on a real interest rate scale, you're in negative interest rates. And so when you start getting into that dynamic, now you have citizens that, and this is a really, really long answer to your original question, but I think you have to understand all this to understand why Bitcoin, right? So back to where I was. So if you have negative interest rates, what you actually have is a deal, a contract between two parties that guarantees the loss of capital. So if I go up to you and I say, hey, let's do a deal, Robert. You buy this negative yielding bond. Give me $100 today. And then next year, I guarantee you, I will give you back $99. Promise. I swear to God, I will do it. I will give you $99 back. And today, believe it or not, in the entire world, there is $15 trillion of negative yielding bonds that are that exact contract structure of people guaranteeing themselves, signing up for a guaranteed loss, $15 trillion worth today. So when you start getting into that situation, the incentive structure changes to people saying, hey, you know what? I'm just going to take the cash. I'm going to put it in a safety deposit box. And then next year, instead of getting $99, I'll still have my $100. That's where you're at. And so you're at this point where the bond market's going to break because no one wants to sign up for these deals. The only reason I would argue that you're seeing these deals is because states or central banks and states are mandating that they have a buyer of these deals and the issuance of these deals. So it's getting crazy. And that, that 
dynamic is not going to last. And what you're now seeing are central bankers are printing at unstoppable levels. And as they continue to use quantitative easing as their insertion point, which I would describe as inserting the liquidity into the top of the economy and the top earners and the one percenters that own those billion dollar bond tranches, when you know you have somebody that is guaranteed to buy that billion dollar bond tranche, well, guess what? Price is going to go up and it's going to go up and it's going to go up and you're going to continue to get the liquidity. Then you're going to buy stocks and you're going to buy back your shares and you're going to bid the price of equities even higher and higher because equities function as a scarce somewhat. They operate very similar to gold where there's a scarce amount of shares that you can buy for that same amount of equity that you own in, in the operating business. So that's why you're seeing the stock market getting bid like hyperinflation right now because of the fact that the liquidity insertion point continues to be at the top and they're not doing something like universal basic income. And I'm not promoting either one of these courses of action because both of them lead to the same road, which is inflation at a ridiculous scale and why Bitcoin that has a fixed monetary baseline, in my humble opinion, is going to do extraordinarily well against something like this. It's equivalent to going back into the 1922 Germany Weimar Republic. And when you look at what happened there and you saw gold just hold its value, its buying power, it held its buying power, and they couldn't print the money fast enough. You're seeing that digitally now. You know, Back then, they didn't have digital money. So what would that look like today? Well, it looks like what you're seeing in the stock market. It's going bananas. So that was going to be my exact next question. Is Bitcoin today's gold? So when people were back then adding a portion of their portfolio into gold to, to hedge some of their risk, are people now, should they be doing that in Bitcoin rather than gold? My opinion, absolutely. You, know, you could get somebody else on here. You could get some academic. They'll tell you, oh, it's crazy. It, it'll never replace gold. Gold's been around for 10,000 years. They're going to use these these really top level, in my opinion, surface level deep arguments. But when you get into the fact that I can send you a Bitcoin right now and we could settle the trans, we could settle a billion dollar transaction right now if you just put a QRC code up on your screen, I could scan it. And if I had a billion dollars in my account, I could send it to you right now and my fees would be $3. And we could settle that like right now. How is that worse than gold <laughs> where you need a freaking truck and 40 armed guards, and then a transport plane, depending on where you're at, and a delay of 15 days for coordination, and then a high-end security structure in order to house it and keep it and maintain it. It's flipping laughable. Then you get into this. So here's another argument is how do you know that the gold bars are pure? You'd have to melt them down and do a analysis on the chemical composition of all the gold. With Bitcoin, you can just run a full node and test the purity of the billion dollars I just sent you in a second, which is nuts. All right, guys. So that's it for part one of my conversation with Preston, all about Bitcoin, blockchain, and cryptocurrencies. Now that you've heard the first half of the conversation, I hope you can see how all the things I mentioned in the intro are true. It's very heavy and technical information, so you might need to go back and listen to it a couple times. I know I did but it's incredibly fascinating and is going to be a lot of fun to watch play out over the next few years. If you know anyone that wants to learn more about Bitcoin from a beginner's perspective, be sure to share this completely free episode with them. And next week, Preston and I will pick up right where we left off and continue our conversation in part two of this episode. I'll talk to you all then. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.